when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Liz Trust closed a traumatic Tory party conference this week by taking aim at what she called the anti-growth coalition opposed to her plans. I will not allow the anti-growth coalition to hold us back. Labour, the Lib Dems, the SNP, the militant unions, the vested interests dressed up as think tanks, the talking heads, the Brexit deniers, Extinction Rebellion, and some of the people we had in the hall earlier. They prefer protesting to doing. They prefer talking on Twitter to taking tough decisions. They taxi from North London townhouses to the BBC studio to dismiss anyone challenging the status quo. From broadcast to podcast, they peddle the same old answers. It's always more taxes, more regulation, and more meddling. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. This week, we'll be examining what was probably the most chaotic Conservative Party conference in living memory, with cabinet ministers disputing government policy on benefits and tax, former ministers undermining the PM, and open discussions in the bars and parties about whether trust could even survive. Joining me to examine are two prime members of Truss's anti-growth coalition, political editor George Parker and associate editor Stephen Bush. And later, we'll be looking at what businesses had to say about the state of the Tory and Labour parties following their respective conferences. Why were there so many people in smart suits in Liverpool for Labour and so many unhappy people from the city at the Tories drowning their sorrows? Our chief political correspondent, Jim Picard, will unpack along with our business columnist, Kat Rutter-Pooley. Thank you all for joining. This year's Conservative Party conference should have been a triumphant moment for Liz Truss to celebrate her victory in this summer's Tory leadership contest. But instead, it became yet another damage limitation exercise for the Prime Minister as her party descended into yet another round of factional warfare. The Prime Minister told the Tory faithful in her keynote speech on Wednesday that she would be pushing ahead with her economic agenda despite dropping that contentious 45p cut in the top rate of tax, even though it would create some disruption. I have three priorities for our economy. Growth, growth and growth. As the last few weeks have shown, it will be difficult. Whenever there's change there is disruption. And not everybody will be in favour of change. But everyone will benefit from the results. Well, George Parker, welcome back to the pod. We've made it through party conference season. It feels like it's been quite a long one this year. And I dare to ask how many Conservative Party <laughs> conferences you've covered for the FT. But this one feels like it was the most chaotic, 
traumatic and disunited in living memory. Well, we were speaking to one Tory donor, weren't we, this week, who said it was the worst conference he'd been to since the 1970s, and he's been to even more than, than me. But yeah, it was, from the Conservative Party's point of view, terrible. Instead of it being a coronation of Liz Truss, which is obviously what many people would have hoped and expected in the leaders' camp, you know, she's only been Prime Minister for about a month, it turned into a showcase of Tory disunity, chaos, confusion, and the mood was really bad. And by the last night of conference, we're all a bit exhausted, aren't we? And we've gone past midnight and we're staring into our warm glasses of white wine, talking to various members of the cabinet, but the mood was pretty bad. And I spoke to one minister on the last night who basically said it feels like we've already lost. I think that's right. And the fact is that we'll come to Liz Truss's speech in a moment, but every single thing that happened in the run-up to that, the fact that all the speeches were pushed to the end of the day, attendance was certainly down on past years. It had a bit of a gloomy feel to the convention hall in Birmingham, which again, we've been to many times before. And last time we were there, you can remember even Theresa May conferences during the Brexit wars, which felt like pretty downbeat affairs. It was worse than that. Oh, it was terrible. I mean, they, it was instructive that they were using a smaller hall than normal there as well, reflecting the fact there weren't so many people there. That wasn't helped, of course, by the fact there was a rail strike time to coincide with people's arrival and departure from the event. But yeah, I mean, there were plenty of people bailing out early. There were not very many MPs there. That's not unusual, but there were fewer MPs there this time. Although people who wanted to make trouble were there. I can notice Michael Gove was, as you know, said, was uh, speaking on numerous fringe events. Nine events in one conference. And uh, Gavin Williamson, the former chief whip, never far from political mischief, he was wandering around the conference centre as well. The mood was extremely flat and it was, didn't even feel like a conference that most people would think of. I mean, in the past, the conference would start in the morning, there'd be debates, there would at least be a, a few people speaking from the floor or some sort of semblance of interaction. Instead of which, the whole thing was concertinated into two-hour sessions at the end of the day with the people in the hall being talked at by a succession of uh, people in suits. It was very odd. Well, Stephen Bush, you again had the joys of this year's toy conference in Birmingham. Let's look at Liz Truss's speech at the very end, because this was, again, as we were saying, meant to be a big moment for her to introduce herself properly to the wider party, but also the country, and try and add some meat onto her radical vision. And instead, we got this half an hour speech, which is about half the length of a normal leader's speech. But as we heard from the beginning, it certainly wasn't the finest, most soaring oratory, but it sort of was quite workman It did what was required to just stabilise things a little bit after this chaotic week? I don't think the problem with it so much was its length. It was actually with its content. Although the the broad big picture argument, you know, that there are strong anti-growth forces in British politics, wouldn't dispute any of that. And then the broad argument that if you want lower taxes, as she does, then you need a leaner state. Well, that is a plain statement of fact. But what was missing in both cases was, well, we've had quite a lot of fiscal retrenchment in the UK already. At this point, you need to make a specific argument for something you'd like the state to stop doing. And she did not do that. She just engaged in some sort of banalities about how you can have a leaner state somehow just by wishing. Actually, probably the best section, and and she's very much a confidence player. She likes having a fight. So you could tell that she kind of came to life a bit when she was talking about all these awful people who stopped growth in the UK, this anti-growth coalition. But of course, one problem is is that the largest component of the anti-growth coalition in British politics are Conservative councillors. They are the largest party in local government in England. Conservative MPs and front benches, whether it's Brexit, immigration, blocking planning applications in their own constituencies. Now, she's far from the first prime minister who wants to do something radical, who faces more powerful opponents internally than externally. That was true of Margaret Thatcher with the wets, true of Tony Blair on public sector reform, true, arguably, of Boris Johnson and people who wanted to unpick 
the United Kingdom's exit from the European Union. But in all three of those cases, they actually acknowledged where their opposition was. From how she was talking, you'd think the Conservatives had no majority, and the one thing stopping them doing this was these external forces. But I think the big problem with that speech was it just didn't have clarity of thought about who its enemies were. It both wanted to rail against woke virtue signalling, but had this very long thing about how she'd been written off and talked down to because she was a woman. And it's like, there are two perfectly good political pitches in there, but you've kind of got to pick one. And George, you know, this anti-growth coalition, which I think sort of took the meat of the speech, to give you a list of who was on that. So it was the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats, the SNP, trade unions, vested interests dressed up as think tanks, talking heads, Brexit deniers, Extinction Rebellion, people who prefer talking on Twitter to taking tough decisions. They taxi from their North London townhouses to BBC studios, dismiss anyone challenging the status quo. And it's people who, dare I say, appear on podcasts. So I think, even though we all live in different parts of London, we must be a part of the anti-growth coalition. You can see the enemies she's trying to make here, but as Stephen has just very rightly articulated, it doesn't really stack up when you've been in power 12 years. And I also think that whole coalition she suggested, that's an awful lot of the country she She's actually put in there. If you take the 48% of people who voted Remain, plus Labour voters, plus Liberal Democrats, plus Scottish Unionists, plus people in trade unions, it's a big blob. And you can see Tory MPs and ministers are really trying to take this anti-growth coalition message to people through social media after her speech. Well, yeah, I mean, you've highlighted two of the big problems with that concept of the anti-growth coalition. The first one is that ignoring the fact that the Conservatives have been in power since... 2010. It's not people with podcasts or living in North London townhouses or the Liberal Democrats who've been in charge of the economy for the last 12 years. But the other thing is the point that Stephen alluded to, which is the anti-growth coalition will soon include, if it doesn't already, vast numbers of Conservative MPs and councillors. What the government's done here with their mini-budget is you've created a huge hole in the public finances, let's say £45 billion unfunded tax cuts. Then to fill in that gap, you've got to prove that the economy is going to grow faster than hitherto would have been the case. And then you've got to go through a whole list of policies which might, might have a very small incremental effect on increasing growth. But all governments know what you can do to increase growth. The reason they don't do it is it's because it's dangerous. It's almost like there's a shelf with a whole load of jars with a skull and crossbones marked on, do not touch. And it's like Liz Truss is going along, picking one by one them off the shelf, removing the banker's bonus cap, starting fracking again, talking about building on the green belt possibly removing wildlife habitat directives. That's something that's filling MPs' inboxes already. Who's a member of the RSPB? It's Conservative Party members. It's like they're going through every single policy area, trying to make enemies. And in the end, you create not just this sort of idea of the anti-growth coalition of being a load of metropolitan elite, but as we were saying, almost the whole country. Well, Stephen, I think one person who's delighted on this is Michael Gove, who we've interviewed in the FT weekend. And he makes the point that this strain of thinking that Liz Truss comes from is not very conservative. And they talk about Milton Friedman or Frederick Hayek, you know, that school of thought. But they were not conservatives. They were market fundamentalists. And in a way, it feels like the Conservative Party has selected a leader who is saying things they wanted to hear on a smaller state and lower taxes, and is now having to contend with the fact they've actually got a series of economic radicals who are at the fringes of what conservatism normally is. One of the misreads some people outside the Conservative Party, and indeed some people within it, often have about Liz Truss is that because she was famously a Remainer and a Liberal Democrat, they see her, oh, she's someone who changes her politics to get along, or, you know, she's a relative moderate. No, she is someone who 
was a Liberal Democrat in the 90s, a time when the Conservative Party, I think it is unquestionably fair to say, was still roiled with homophobia because she is an old-fashioned classical liberal. And she was a Remainer because she doesn't care all that much about our institutional relationship with the EU, which is why actually one of the pro-growth things she has done is slightly try and move towards normalising our relationships with the EU day-to-day. But actually, that also means they have someone who, yeah, has been part of the Conservative Electoral Coalition, but very unclear whether or not in the modern British economy, when you're also pursuing still a fairly hard Brexit, when you've been in power 12 years, whether or not that component of the coalition, when it's in the driving seat, won't drive the whole party off the cliff. Well, that was the feeling that we might actually get resulting from this conference if we listen to the former Tory minister, Ed Vasey. He was quite honest about how he felt the conference had gone. They can't take any successes from this week. I mean, let's not beat about the bush. It's been a terrible conference. It was a mixture of depressing and black humour. What they can take from this week, I guess, is that it was a disaster and they cannot allow things to carry on like this. So they have to get behind their prime minister. Well, George, when you hear that from not just a pundit like us, but a former Tory minister, a member like Ed Vasey, it highlights just what a mess things are in. And the, obviously the key moment of the conference was the dramatic U-turn on the 45p top rate of tax. And it had been feeling unsustainable for a good week after it was announced. But it was only late on Sunday night, early on Monday morning, that reports started to filter out that Listerus was going to U-turn on this. And Quasi Quartang did that at about 7.30am on Tuesday and did the usual line that we're a listing government, we get it. I think he was channeling Gordon Brown who said that in, during his premiership about the tax rates. But then you saw others like Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, and Simon Clark, the Leveling Up Secretary, actually saying, you know what, it wasn't the policy, it was the timing wrong. So even within this strain of the ideological debate, there's not clarity on where it goes. Well, there's no doubt Liz Trust would have wanted to do it and quasi Quateng as well because, you know, it's part of their whole mantra of shrinking the tax base and uh, cutting people's taxes. But in the end, the politics of ditching it was certainly the right one because otherwise you'd have ended up with a, a conference being dominated by it, infighting on that particular issue. There's plenty of other things for people to fight about. And they decided to kill it off, which actually was good politics in the short run. But the problem is it gives the impression that you've got this new administration which can be pushed around by people who don't like the policies they're pursuing. And given the fact that this trust has a sort of very slender grip on her own party, given the fact that we've seen plenty of cabinet infighting this week already, it doesn't augur well if you've then got to, over the coming weeks and months, pursue a whole series of difficult policies. The fact you've done a U-turn the first time you hit a bit of trouble is a very, very bad sign, I think, politically. And then the next, of course, big debate, Stephen, is going to be benefits and whether you operate them in line with inflation. And this is something that Liz Truss has sort of said, everything's on the table because following the tax cuts and the market disruption, there is this widespread feeling there are going to need to be spending cuts. And of course, the politics of cutting taxes for the wealthiest and then not raising benefits is absolutely awful. Yet, there seems to be this big debate between people and the cabinet, Penny Morden coming out saying she does want them uprated, Jacob Rees-Mogg agreeing, then others saying less so. Yeah, so you have Suella Braverman coming out and saying people live the life of Riley, essentially. The big problem, right, is that since 2015, when the Conservatives won an election on a platform promising £12 billion of nebulous benefit cuts, they have basically managed to cut about £2 billion because... We now have a point where we have some of the least generous benefits in the OECD. A good proportion of those are in-work benefits. So it is both incredibly socially painful for the people who receive those cuts, but politically it's painful to cut working tax credits in any democracy. So 
I think speaks to the bigger problem here, which is that these tax cuts, if they are to continue, require you to find the guts of £40 billion of spending cuts, at least by 26, 27. That's assuming that you can hold the line on the very real spending cuts that inflation forces on departmental budgets anyway, all of which I would say seems unlikely, right? There's a great chart on an FT piece about, you know, the impact of austerity on Whitehall, which shows brilliantly, right, this chart goes down very sharply until about 2013, and then it essentially starts to gradually flatline until it goes back up again in Rishi Sunak's, you know, first real-term spending increases for departments. Now, I personally don't think that's because David Cameron and George Osborne suddenly became politically weak and politically cowardly in 2013. It's because actually... There just was more to cut in those first three years. That creates a big problem for the Tory party. There was a good reason why Boris Johnson refused to use the word austerity. He always said the A word, and he said, we're not going to talk about this. There'll be no return to austerity. That was the compact between the Conservative Party and the British public at the 2019 election, which brings us on to another problem. And you're starting to get it articulated by people like Michael Gove, by people like Nadine Doris, who back Liz Trust for the leadership, and saying... You've not got a mandate to do this stuff. We were elected on a totally different platform back in 2019, and you can't do that. And the problem is, you know, you see all these economic escape routes being blocked off one by one. If they can't go after benefits, and I agree with Stephen, where are you going to get the money from? The problem is that they've created this huge fiscal hole by doing a couple of really big tax moves, which people didn't care about, frankly. The national insurance rise had already gone through. It had been badged as a health and social care levy, which people broadly bought into at the time. And the other one, the corporation tax rise, which Rishi Sunak had planned to, be, planned to do, which they want to reverse. If you speak to business people, they'll say, well, it'd be nice to have. But actually, we're more concerned about the taxes you have to pay before you make a profit, not the ones you make after you make a profit. So they've created, it seems to me, at least a £30 billion hole completely arbitrarily in the hope that it will somehow boost growth. And then, Stephen, the way they would respond to this, if we had someone from Liz Truss's government here, would be saying it's all about the supply-side reforms now, because this has been the, the second component, because we had the tax component, and we've also, of course, got the fiscal component. We had another Rahal at Tory conference this week when the FT reported they were going to bring forward the OBR's settlement and how it's going to work from the 23rd of November. And in fact, they now actually might go back to November the 23rd. We might get something interim next week, but it's not entirely clear. But on the supply side reforms, if you're a backbench Tory MP like Grant Chaps or Michael Gove or Mel Stride, who have all been out and about campaigning against what Liz Truss has been doing, you're going to look at these contentious things, be it immigration, planning reform, childcare, and you will know that you can rally together 40 MPs pretty easily because all of them require difficult decisions and don't see any impetus to actually go with what the government is doing because they don't think it's going to supply the kind of growth that would be needed to make these tax cuts work. It's not going to get through Parliament before the next election. And in this point of the mandate, it's becoming very, very clear. This is the big problem, right? Although the last election was a landslide defeat for the Labour Party, the majority over all the parties is not that large in historic terms. You only need 40 or so MPs to go missing to suffer a defeat. That is essentially means that any single component faction in the Tory party can defeat you. And it's very hard to find a supply-side reform that both moves the dial in a meaningful way in terms of growth and doesn't alienate people who are opponents of either Liz Truss or the organised ideological factions within the, the Conservative Party. So, I mean, this is the thing, is, is of those reforms, broadly speaking, they're all fine, right? They're nice to have. But they are teeny tiny multiples of growth. This parliament has already rejected a serious attempt at planning reform with a powerful prime minister in the shape of Boris Johnson. 
Now, the, the hope in Liz Truss's campaign team wasn't what you could do is you could cut up that planning reform into little bitty bits and essentially get MPs to sort of eat it by stealth. As you say, you have these enemies of Liz Truss on the backbenches who will be looking going, oh, actually, remember that planning reform you hated? It's actually still in the investment zone. It's still in that. It's still in this. And yeah, I think it does mean that unless some event changes her fortunes sort of externally, the life of this government will be of either retreats before defeat in the House of Commons or defeat in the House of Commons. And finally, George, this is the question everyone really wants to know following the events of this week. Is Liz Truss going to survive? Or is there anything that can change the paradigm for Liz Truss? Because at the moment, the party is against her. Her ministers don't have any discipline. It's unclear how she gets those supply-side reforms through. And there is this general feeling that her premiership is really over before it started, that people have taken one look at her and have decided that they don't want what she's selling. We did find plenty of Tory MPs at the Tory conference who think that she can't survive this. And just look at the YouGov poll that's been published this week on her favourability ratings. Minus 58, I think it was. Only 14% of voters have a favourable impression of this trust. And as we know, first impressions really count. As we've been discussing, the economic escape routes for her look fairly limited. So things are really, really tough for her. And you can see plenty of reasons why she won't make it through to the election. What she needs is a series of external positive economic shocks, let's say the end of the war in Ukraine or for some reason the gas price comes down or the American economy picks up more quickly than we thought and the economy starts to turn around here and she can say, ha-ha, the bold, difficult decisions that I took at the start of my premiership are starting to pay off. You can see her constructing a narrative around that, but all those are very, very big contingent things and they are basically outside of her control. And last word, Stephen. The one thing that did happen this week which helped Liz Truss was how well Suella Braverman did. Because if you're an MP on the left of the party or a sort of ideological supporter of Rishi Sunak's, and don't forget that his base of support was basically those two quite different groups, you're looking at this going, this can't possibly get worse. And then you see Suella Braverman being cheered to the rafters and you go, oh, it turns out it can. And if you're on the right of the party, you're thinking, why should we let them stitch up a coronation? We could have another shot at this. And I think that the one thing that means that she might get to lead the party into the next election is a situation in which MPs, and don't forget the majority of MPs are from the left or centre of the party, think, okay, as bad as things are, we don't think we can reliably get a soft landing of our own. And it's essentially deadlock in terms of ambitions and process as well. No one wants to make things worse from where they are now. So I think you're right. It just stumbles on. I think Liz Truss will continue to try and improve the situation. George and Stephen, thank you very much. Businesses are typically omnipresent at party conferences, whining and dining politicians to lobby for their corporate causes. But for the last decade and a little bit beyond, the Conservative Party has been their natural home. But something palpably shifted at this year's conferences. In part, it was thanks to Liz Truss's radical economic agenda, but also the sense the Labour Party might be heading back to power for the first time in over 12 years. But Jacob Rees-Mogg, the business secretary who delivered a keynote speech in Birmingham, argued there was still overwhelming support for Liz Truss's speech 
and her agenda. She set out clear Conservative policies. She is pro-growth. Um, we have helped people with their energy bills. We have shown that we are a tax-cutting government that believes people spend their own money better than the state spends it for them. Well, Jim Picard, welcome back to the pod. So let's just look back at both conferences and we've had the absolute pleasures of attending the gatherings in Liverpool and Birmingham together. And we're still standing. Well, some of us are. What was the feeling from the businesses and the business groups you spoke to at those conferences and how did it differ from previous years? So I think we need to go back a step to the mini budget which preceded party conference season. And that is the moment where Kwasi Kwarteng, the Chancellor, set out a whole series of regulatory reforms, massive unfunded tax cuts. And at the time, the business world applauded it. And I think the thing was they loved the pro-growth rhetoric. They loved the deregulation. They loved the plans to loosen the planning system, create investment zones. And so when they did that mini-budget, they got quite a positive reaction. But I think a lot of those business groups saw what happened with sterling falling, guilt yields rising, and slightly got cold feet because they realized that the fiscal implications of this and the implications for sterling and for interest rates and for mortgage rates could quite easily end up overshadowing the positive, as they saw it, benefits on the deregulatory side of the mini-budget. So when we went to the Labour conference up in Liverpool, there were a lot of business people there. I think it was positive in the sense of Labour people have loads of time on their hands because they're not running a country. So they have loads of time to engage with business and other lobbyists from from all over the place. And business came away quite happy. The the level of attendance was higher than usual. The seniority of business people going to Labour conference was higher than usual. And then we had Tory conference where there were big attempts by Tory ministers and number 10 A's to engage with business, but there was a feeling that things were a bit frenetic. Some of the meetings were a bit disappointing because by contrast, Tory ministers do have a country to run and they have an awful lot on their plates. And so, for example, business leaders on Monday morning were a bit disappointed when Kwasi could only make a short appearance at their business breakfast. To be fair to Mr. Kwateng, he had things to deal with like reversing the 45p rate, which was simultaneously happening. So it was a very different vibe. And just finally, there was also a sense, I think, along a lot of business delegates in Birmingham at Tory conference, where they were coming back to their, their masters in London and saying, we need to spend a little bit more time engaging with Labour, because you might not have noticed, but they're 30 points ahead in the opinion polls. Well, some of the business leaders I spoke to in Birmingham, they were pretty disappointed, more so than previous years, of course, where the Tories have also had a country to run. When, for example, you know, as you said, there were many CEOs going away telling their corporate affairs teams to go off and focus on preparations for Labour government. But there was this sense that business day, the business supper, the business breakfast, all these things cost thousands of pounds for businesses to attend. There seemed to be this slight feeling that they felt they hadn't been that well treated. And the BBC has had reports as well as the FT about the fact that many leaders felt that they paid £3,000 to attend this sort of dinner. The food was pulled away before they left. They were left a bit disappointed by the speeches. Was that just this sense, a lack of care? The Tories have thought we don't really need to care about business because they're always on our team. I mean, you're right about that that sense of a lot of people complaining about their treatment in Birmingham. Uh, We've got one senior lobbyist quoted in an article we, we ran the other day saying, it seems like they've forgotten their manners. It's like a family wedding where there's been a tremendous row and they can no longer be polite to the guests. To defend this Liz Trust government, again, there's a massive difference between Labour in opposition and the current Tory administration, which is firefighting the crisis in financial markets, you know, the unsavoury reactions to the mini-budget, 
the fact that they, they have to deal with all these other things like war in Europe. And I don't want to overdo the defense of them, but they have a lot on their plates. And business noticed that. And business also noticed the opinion polls. And business also noted that they need to really get close to lay pretty quickly. Well, of course, and one could say they've got a lot on the plate because the mini-budget was potentially their own fault and they miscalibrated it. Well, Kat Rotopouli, it's an absolute delight to welcome you to Payne's Politics. Tell us what your sense is from both the City of London and the wider business community about how the Trust government is treating business. Is it better, worse or different from the Boris Johnson and previous Tory administration? I think it is clearly different because under the Boris administration, there was a definite sense that business was not the top priority. It wasn't welcome. That has changed. Where the difference is coming now is that it hasn't quite played out how business expected it to. So we did get a big welcome from the business groups when these policies were first announced in the mini budget. They were getting a huge number of things that they wanted on tax cuts and some other stuff like the bonus cap that they didn't so much and were a bit surprised. But it showed the sense of direction. It showed a friendliness. And the the government really has put business at the heart of its programme and at the heart of its growth programme. The problem is that if everything else goes badly, the markets fall apart, your currency goes to pot, then that's what business hates more. Exactly. It's this point about certainty and stability. And I remember when the mini-budget was first announced, Kat, there was lots of very positive quotes from, you know, the CBI and many groups saying, this is great, we like the better environment, not increasing corporation tax next year. That's exactly the sort of thing that we want. And then all that's kind of U-turned as we've seen the market instability. And then, of course, this point about confidence, the U-turn on the 45p, which we talked about earlier in the podcast and what a big political moment that was. But economically for business, it gives the sense, well, if they're going to U-turn on that, what else might they U-turn on? To an extent, we haven't had the really important stuff for business. So what should have come across and what should have been the outcome of the mini budget for business was that, yes, we've got the city back in favour. We've got the tone right. We're repairing those bridges. We're putting business front and centre. Great. What they actually want from a growth perspective is to have the right regulatory environment. That's the stuff that we're going to get the actual detail on further down the line. The problem is that if you haven't got a stable government, a predictable government, then you don't know what regulations you're going to end up with. And I think there was some wag made a comment along the lines of just because this lot love markets doesn't mean that markets love them. And and on the specific tax cuts that ought to have benefited business or, or trust and Kwarteng thought that they would be applauded, actually the 45p rate was not overwhelmingly welcomed by people who would benefit from it because a lot of them look at the public realm and think, well, actually, we'd kind of rather just have better public services and, and maybe pay slightly more tax. And on the corporation tax point, ever since Trust has said that she didn't want to put up corporation tax from 19p to 25p, which she soon was going to do, a lot of businesses have said, we're all for tax cuts, but we would rather have targeted ones such as business rate reductions or breaks for investment allowances, that kind of thing. Think about corporation taxes that only levied on your profits, and they would rather a, a sort of fairer system before that. These people are used to being the bad guys. They're used to being the bogeyman. We've had a decade of that. They're not naive. They're very savvy political operators. They know that having things which benefit the people at the top and which can only be kind of positioned as that looks really bad. It's one of the reasons why they didn't really want to get rid of the bonus cap. They don't want to be seen to be benefiting at the expense of other people. An extraordinary moment a couple of days ago where I think the head of Shell 
said that he could see how a higher windfall tax was inevitable and he could kind of see the moral case for it. Yes, and I remember talking to one senior Tory donor in the conference in Birmingham and when he was talking about the 45p rate and cutting the tax, he said... Many of the people in the 1% don't actually want the world focusing on them. They're very happy to pay a bit of extra tax and possibly shuffling some of it around the world to maybe not pay the tax in UK jurisdictions. But by having a big debate about that, which was created by this policy, is the opposite of what they want. Now, I want to come back to Kat's point about fairness, because some people in the business community have said that actually this idea of Liz Trust that you have to just go for growth, come what may, that has a trade-off with fairness. And Tony Danker, who's head of the CBI lobby group, had this to say. I don't accept that you have to trade off growth with fairness. I think you should have growth and you should have fair distribution uh, of wealth. And I think that's the economy we should be trying to build. So yes, I'm absolutely, as are most of the businesses I speak to, worried about the cost of living crisis almost above everything. Is that possible though, Kat? Because obviously the government spent this £100 billion plus energy package to help with the cost of living crisis. The supply side reforms are going to try and push for growth. But what else is it that people who've got the sort of thinking of Mr Danker would like to be seeing from the government that they're not right now? The trade-off isn't necessarily growth v fairness. Everyone agrees that we need to get Britain growing. The problem is that you need the broader stability to be able to do it. That's what Tony Danker and the business community want. They want to grow, then you can have the redistribution argument. Unless you have the support of the markets, you can't get the growth going in the first place. And I think the point that a lot of people ignore, especially in the trust camp, is they seem to act as if their policy is the only one that will lead to growth. The issue with it is... Yes, in theory, these reforms could lead to higher tax take in the future, but you have a time lag. You can't announce low rates of income tax and then suddenly the scrapping of the 45p rate when they had that, and suddenly you have enormous rise in tax receipts. There's a lag, and this is the thing that the market took fright at, was the idea that you could cut £45 billion of tax a year and somehow that would magically refill like a porridge pot almost instantly, and it would take years for that to happen. Well, for those listeners who buy the FT weekend, they read the lunch that I did with Michael Gove, the former levelling up secretary. He makes the point that it's not exactly as if a Marxist cell has been running the country for the past 12 years. And it, it might have occurred to George Osborne, Philip Hammond, Rishi Sunak, Sajid Javid, the former chancellors, that they wanted growth as well. And you can see politically why it works, Jim. But if it was a magic wand to growth, why wouldn't these previous toy chancellors have done it? And the anti-growth coalition might observe, ironically, that the Tory government and Tory Lib Dem government of the last 12 years has achieved growth somewhere, was it between 1% and 2%, which is lower than those Trotskyite Marxist Labour people achieved in in the previous decade, of course. And finally, Kat, what's the general view in the city and business community about Labour? Because obviously during the Jeremy Corbyn years, John McDonnell, who was then the shadow chancellor, did his own version of the famous prawn cocktail circuit in the 1990s, where Labour was seen to be whining and dining city figures, trying to reassure them about the prospect of them getting into power. John McDonnell tried a bit of that, but I think there was always this general sense they were going to be too radical, you couldn't quite trust them. Now you've got Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves, and their number one watchword, as we talking about on the podcast last week is calm competence. And given the chaos we've seen that last week, do you get a sense that businesses just feel in fact, actually, we take a risk with Labour and try that over everything we've had with the Tories? Business sees which ways the wind is blowing and they clearly have good links on both sides. They've got a much more hospitable environment in Labour than they did a couple of years ago. And the thing is, 
what we get is a sensible approach from Labour in that they're not proposing whacking most companies with big tax rises. There's the windfall tax, but that's an isolated sector-specific issue. They're not talking about hitting small business across the board. And that makes a real difference tonally in terms of where they're coming from and how they engage with business. And I think Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor, is a former Bank of England economist and has talked quite a lot in her public pronouncements about having a fully costed budget and one that is in some ways quite small C conservative. You know, yes, there are some sort of quite radical ideas of part of Labour's agenda, but on the economy, it doesn't feel as if it's really pushing the boat out that far to the left. No, and clearly that's going to be very palatable to business community. But they're also just going to work with whatever they've got. At the moment, it's someone who, because they're not in government, doesn't have the opportunity to mess things up as much versus the Conservatives who are all over the place. Business knows what they would prefer in that situation. Well, finally, Jim, this is the point, isn't it? That Labour's in opposition. It's very easy to critique everything that's been going on with the government and your point about where growth's been over the past 12 years as well. But obviously, if Labour does get in at the next election in 2024, we assume, things are going to be pretty difficult for them as well. And they're going to face some very unpalatable choices. What's your feeling from the top of Labour about where the economy is, their views towards business. Can they see an opportunity here that they want to walk into and can they? What we're not going to do is go back to the era of Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell where you know, some of their economic policy was within the traditions of social democratic parties across Europe, like the nationalisation of water or energy wasn't that radical or insane. You know, there's a perfectly reasonable case for it. Where they did go a little bit overboard from the business community's perspective was the idea of literally taking 1% of every big company's shares every year. So over the course of a decade, the state would be stealing 10% of every big company in Britain. Those were things that were not palatable to the business community. This lot under Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves would be much more mainstream. But look, whoever's in government in a couple of years' time could be facing the most awful cataclysm of economic factors if Russia doesn't end the invasion of Ukraine or Ukraine doesn't defeat them. If mortgage rates keep going up. You know, we're talking about 6% two-year fixed today. If these things continue, if these rising mortgage rates precipitate a correction in the housing market, if that has to spill off into the financial markets, whoever is in charge, Labour, Conservative or anybody else, they're going to be facing an absolute headache, I suspect. Well, Jim and Kat, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then make us happy and subscribe this weekend. You know where to find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes every Saturday morning. We also like positive reviews and nice ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers were Persis Love and Yang Sigsworth. Until next time, thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. 
As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 